I did cry while Maya was talking. <laughs> yeah, I was. A, I like started crying when Zach was talking. <laughs> oh, I almost did too. That long pause wasn't thought. It was like me trying to not like <gasps> sob. Welcome to Blind Spotters, a podcast about furious jumping, becoming death, and the movies we've actually seen. I'm Zach Pocklib. And I'm Amanda Luberto. And today we're doing this year's version of a favorites of 2023 episode. Um, we've done this a couple times now instead of a swap. And so um, we're going to go over our top five movies of the year, a few fun extra categories, and just chop it up about what was a lovely 2023 at the movies. But before we get to all that, we have to address the fact that we have a person in the third chair, a return guest, the er blind spotters guest, if you will. She's an avid movie watcher herself, third member of our group chat. Welcome to our show, good friend Maya. Hi, Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, I'm so excited to be back. Third time's a charm. This is like my highlight of the year. Love talking about movies with y'all. And it's great to have you back. And also on a mic, uh, we have upgraded from the AirPods to a real microphone. I hope everyone can tell the difference in production level here. Uh, I feel like this movie year was a good throwback to the ones pre-COVID. So I would like to open up and ask everybody, what was movie watching like for you in 2023? Amanda, let's start with you. So 2023 was the year I officially became a film critic, which is like (laughs) such a weird thing to say still. Um, but yeah, I became a member of the Phoenix Critic Circle and I started writing reviews for the uh, Arizona Republic. So I went to like a lot of screeners and I did a lot of movie watching at a different rate than ever before. But I did like still see a good chunk of movies that came like before this year in blind spotters fashion. That would like define my year. Yeah, Blind Spotters went official this year. Now that we have a real <laughs> movie critic on our roster, congrats to you. Love to see the reviews uh, in Arizona Central um, for the Arizona Republic, and can't wait to see what you think of this year's slate. Maya, how about you? What was the movie watching year for you? You know, it was it was a great year. I definitely did a little less watching overall than I have the past couple years. I saw a hundred and. 55 movies in total, I think. 61 of those were 2023 releases, and 52 of those I saw in theaters. Nice. Um, Oh, wow. But that was a little less than I normally consume, but movies was definitely still top priority for me. I think an advantage you have, Maya, is living in New York City, so a lot of these movies that go into limited release are available to you, um, for which I'm really jealous. Amanda, we didn't get to hear your numbers. What were your stats for the year? Do you know? So my final breakdown was 214 total. I made the 200 club this year. Very excited. Um, 177 of them I had not seen before. So those were new. The rest were rewatches. 60 of them came out this year. All of my stats increased this year. So all right, Zach, what about you? What was movie watching like for you? Yeah, so this year I, I think I watched less total or I watched less movies for the first time. And I kind of put more focus on like rewatching some ones and even rewatching movies that came out this year. Really mm-hmm. liked luxuriating in some movies. But I say all that to say I watched 232 movies for the first time this year, um, which is down uh, about 11 from 2022. But I also rewatched more than ever. So my total number was 322 movies watched. Um, and then I watched 34 in theaters, which is 12 more than, than 2022. And part of that is because uh, in Las Vegas, we finally got an independent theater um, the Beverly, 
uh, downtown. So they were uh, showing a lot of cool stuff. Like I got to see Rear Window and Escape from New York there. And they even showed movies that uh, had smaller releases like Fallen Leaves in theater. And this month they'll be showing like May, December and Maestro on th- in theater. So it's really sick to have a, a venue like that. It was a fun movie year, t- especially at the at the theater. When you said 232 or whatever, I was like, oh my God, our numbers are so close this year. And then you're like, those are just the ones I saw for the first time. And I was like, oh, never mind. <laughs> so I was like, oh, last year we were like oh, almost 100 apart. <laughs> but it's not about me. It's about the movies that came out last year. And there's a lot of fun ones. So are you guys ready to just kind of dive in? Well, let's do let's it. Let's do it. Okay. So um, in the past, uh, just talking about the order, we've done it where if there's an overlap, like if Maya and I had the same movie, we would save the discussion for the movie as a whole until we got to the higher position. So if like I had a movie at five that she had at three, we'd wait until we get to uh, her third favorite movie. That felt like it was a little hard to track, especially when I was personally editing. So I felt like it'd be fun to hear what everyone has to say about each movie they have. So we'll just go through our fives, fours, threes, twos, and ones individually and then obviously talk about it as a group sound good sounds like a plan makes sense to me with that let's just start off hot with potentially the autorist vision of the year maya what do you have at your number five so at number five i've got martin scorsese's killers of the flower moon i don't know that i've ever been so like floored by a film i've seen before that movie is three and a half hours long And it's a bummer, like, the whole way through. (laughs) It's so punishing. But again, like, I feel like every word adjective I'm going to say is, like, negative. But I truly, like, mean it as a compliment because I think that 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 was Scorsese's intention. I think he knew he was telling a story about the horrors that the Osage Nation experienced at the hands of white Americans. Um... And we're, as an audience, supposed to feel that. We're supposed to be sitting in that pain and that trauma as well. Um, And man, does he do it, like, so effectively. Lily Gladstone is just, like, an absolute triumph as Molly. I'm so blown away by everything that she can do in, like, complete silence, like, just with her face and the expressions and her body language she conveys so much with so little, and I can't believe that, like, this is the first big project that so many of us are seeing her in. Like, I feel like she's been doing this forever, and we should have been seeing her do this forever, and I'm so excited to see, like, where her career goes from here. When it comes to me listing all of the things that impacted me, like, Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro are so low on my list, and yet they're so phenomenal in the whole thing. The score from Robbie Robertson, like there's so much other stuff that comes to mind first. And in some ways, I feel like it should be higher on my list than number five. But I think the bummer nature of it all kind of does put it a little lower because I can't say that it's a fun time. But damn, is it like a freaking good time at the movies? Yeah. I I mean, it's one of those things that you finish watching it and you're like, this is why cinema exists. So that people can tell stories at this level with this much money, let's not be fooling ourselves. And like, you know, if I have to buy a new iPhone every five years, so that that like, this movie can exist, like, again, that's fine with me. I don't really care that much. Yeah, Tim Um, Cook can take my money. It just really feels like it's Martin Scorsese's magnum opus. Like, that was my biggest takeaway when I first saw it was like, oh, this is everything he's been trying to do his whole career. And now he has all of the like 
like respect and repertoire behind him and he's gonna go for it 400 percent and at the end i'm gonna say thank you sir may i have another <laughs> this is so good <laughs> Yeah, to that point of uh, an opus, it does feel hand in hand with the Irishman in terms of a reflection on his career and what he wants to say about the totality of his, what, five decades making movies. Um, Whereas the Irishman was like a pretty on the nose look at his career. I do think there's something to be said about the fact that he's the one telling the story and I th- and, and the coda that comes at the end of this film and the cameo that um, I think really confronts a lot of the criticisms of how the movie was made or who the movie was made for um, in a way that only Martin Scorsese could execute. It's the best Robert De Niro performance of the century by far, and he might be the second or third best takeaway the costume design from Jacqueline West that um, I thought Lily Gladstone had a lot of cool stuff to say about how she got into character and part of it being once she got into the costume and you felt like the thickness of the fabrics and the stiffness of it all and how that impacted her performance um, everybody was really in sync and brought it I will say on the theater note that this was my worst theater experience of the year. <laughs> oh, no. um, I think I shared this on the podcast earlier in the year but I don't know if it ended up getting cut but there were like maybe 25 people. It was a huge theater. So like we were all spread out, but there was like one row behind me and like two chairs over was a guy who maybe a half an hour in fell asleep and old man snored at the top of his lungs through the entire rest of the film. So much so that like I never talk in movies and I like turned around and I like looked at the guy next to him and was like, you need to wake him up. And he was like, I don't know what to do. And so the guy like just snored through the rest of the movie. <laughs> Damn. That's it wild. Um, <laughs> but like we were saying, if Scorsese uh, was perhaps reflecting on his own career, um, Amanda, your number five is another filmmaker at the top of his game, also potentially looking at his offerings into the filmmaking space to this point. What is your number five movie of the year? My number five movie is Wes Anderson's Asteroid City. So up until literally like two hours ago, there were options for my number five. And I've been so stressed about it. I like called in a different friend at one point and was like, this is my dilemma. I don't know what to do. Um, But I just took the time to rewatch Asteroid City. And I was like, no, this really is as everything I want it to be. And I cried again at a part we'll talk about later. But if people want to get on his case about creating shoeboxes, like this is not helping. Like this is a diorama film. They're all in one location because they themselves are quarantined. Um, but something I said in my review was that it is amazing to me that someone I've studied so much and like feel so deeply connected to could still surprise me. When the little alien came down, my whole audience was like, oh my God, this is like there was like four probably 19 year old boys behind me and they had like that was like movie night out and I could tell they were so excited and like before every like in every credit they're like yeah that one looks like like super good and like all this kind of stuff like precious I loved it (laughs) and like the alien comes down and one of them is like he's not fucking doing this right now this is unreal (laughs) and you know what I felt the same (laughs) it was like you've got to be kidding me like, I mean, the part where Jason Schwartzman's character is talking to 
Scarlett Johansson's character and he's like, I really feel like the alien thinks we're doomed. And she's like, what if we are? And then he just puts his hand on the burner. Like this idea of like, I don't know if I can handle that. And I need like a quick reality check that like I am an alive human being right now. And I just thought it was beautiful and I loved it. I was hoping you would have this one on your list. I feel like in a way he's been either chasing or always has that it's been a hard year dad in him with each movie. Uh, but I I do think this one is growing in estimation the more time that passes, which doesn't really fit well in terms of like looking at the scope of a year and thinking, you know, six months ago when I watched uh, Asteroid City, what did I think of it or how much did I like it? But I do think this is a movie, once again, that'll be just grow in estimation as time goes by. I think this is finally the time he captured It's Been a Hard Year, Dad. And I feel like there's a lot of movies of his, obviously, that I like and I feel very emotionally connected to and like lines hit me differently. But this was like, I feel like the first time he captured like that same essence again. I'm going to be talking a little bit more about Wes further down the road and I don't want to spoil it. Um, We're also, spoiler alert, going to be talking about Margot Robbie further down the road. Obviously. But I have to say like, she was so phenomenal in this movie. Her like, couple minutes of screen time are are truly like the the best part of this film and this film has so many wonderful moments um but like i can't i want to see more margot robbie in wes anderson movies because i feel like the two of them really like clicked into to what makes the other work so well um and it was so moving another person i'd love to see in more wes anderson films is maya hawk hell yeah uh, who had a sneaky sick year at the movies. She was like very much in step with the cadence, the tone, and and kind of also the deadpan heartfeltness that um, Wes Anderson calls for. It felt like she has been doing Wes Anderson movies her whole life. Like it felt totally, so yeah. natural to see her in this. And then you're like, wait a minute, she's so young and this is her first one. And there's like such an amazing future ahead of her. But she she just fits so perfectly into everything that you want a Wes Anderson movie to be. And it was incredible. Uh, Before we move on, the last thing I wanted to say is that um, if Focus Features wants to send me a gin martini with a lemon twist vending machine, I will do an unboxing. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) All right. So uh, we're at my number five, and it's another filmmaker really looking at the totality of his career and what it means to be um, an auteur. I'm talking about Hayao Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron, the Studio Ghibli offering, and perhaps Miyazaki's final film. I didn't expect to have this movie as high as I did when I went to go see it. And I don't think I had it this high like a week ago. But the more I thought about it, the more I like tried to like rewatch certain clips or just consider the story that he was telling, the building of worlds versus living out in the real world. The original title of this movie in Japan is How Do You Live? And I think it was an intriguing mixture of the like special fantastical world building of a Miyazaki film with still the aspects of someone in their 80s making these films. From the like kind of unique and thrilling opening sequence to downshifting all the way into the beautiful mundanity um, that these movies capture to the fantastical elements and the ways in which um, we all learn more about ourselves through watching his movies. Like this is as much a film for adults as it is for kids. And I think we've seen from 
some other animated films of the last few years that it's really hard to strike that balance. And oftentimes studios will go either or. It's just such a beautiful investigation into creation and the legacy we pass on or what we need to do if there is no person to pass on that legacy to. Um, it, it just becomes more moving the more I think about it and the more I watch it. I watched this um, with the original Japanese and subtitled. I really still want to watch it uh, dubbed because I've heard so many great things about the rapper Pattinson vocal performance. Um, and the character who Florence Pugh voices is perhaps my favorite in the movie. So that's really just speaking to me. Um, and I also just want to give a quick shout out to lead animator Takashi Honda, um, just some of the most beautiful landscapes and beautiful pictures and, and, and moving images that you can see in a movie this year. Amazing. I haven't seen it yet. I'm not as religious about Miyazaki films. There's a few that I really love. After I found out that people really feel like this is like a reflection of his whole career and really were like, if you understand XYZ ABC movies about him, then like you'll love this one. I was like, oh, I haven't seen any of those films. So I am a little ap apprehensive. Maybe that's not, maybe that word has like a different connotation, what I'm trying to say. But like, I am not rushing to see it because I feel like I'm not going to appreciate it as much as if I was like a student of his. To draw an easy comparison, it's like The Fablemans for Steven Spielberg. Like I hadn't watched Close Encounters of the Third Kind um, before watching The Fablemans, but it felt like um, The Fablemans was this kind of Rosetta Stone that I could imprint on my future like watches of Spielberg films. Maya, have you had a chance to see this yet? I haven't. This is actually the only movie um, on all of our top fives that I haven't seen. And I'm pretty sure I've never seen a Miyazaki movie. Ooh, this is very exciting. Um, so I like am very excited to start on that journey. But I also am debating like maybe I go in reverse order and like start with the boy and the heron and like go kind of reverse chronological and kind of see what that unlocks for me. Um, but I definitely it's it's high on my list and definitely much more so now that I know that it was number five of the year for you because I, I'm so sure from everything I've heard from everyone that I will love this and I will love um, I think the vast majority of Miyazaki's work if not all of it. What's fascinating about this film also is that it's probably my fourth favorite Ghibli movie maybe even fifth favorite but still it lands in my top five. Before we move on what's your number one? Do you have I'm one? I'm a basic boy. It's Hal's Moving Castle. Mine's Kiki's Delivery Service but yeah, that, that should sense. come at no shock to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, in another way, we're going to talk about uh, a very impactful entity for all of us growing up, I feel like, or at least kids forever and ever. We're talking about Maya's number four, which is what? So my number four was, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Maybe I said this about Killers of the Flower Moon, but actually I mean it more for this, which is that I've never been more bowled over by a movie in my entire life. I cried through like the whole end of that movie i cried on the entire walk home from the upper west side i like meandered through central park just like crying <laughs> and then i got home and i got on letterbox and i was like i have to write my review and i cried through that whole thing too it, it, it tapped into this really deep feelings of girlhood and growing up and I think some things that I didn't even know were so unresolved in myself till I was sitting there in this theater weeping. This movie is is one of the most honest portrayals of like anything I've ever seen. Um, 
But obviously the film is about a preteen girl's experience moving to a new town, trying to make new friends, all the while navigating puberty and and the like first crushes on boys and and also watching her parents go through their own struggles and their own difficulties. And it's like the first time that she's old enough and mature enough to be conscious of those things. And those her parents' struggles can have an impact on her and vice versa. And it's this amazing, moving, like family story that's absolutely anchored by Rachel McAdams giving one of the most phenomenal performances she's ever given. Um, one of the most honest performances I've ever seen of a mother. Um, and it really expands upon that character from the book. I actually reread the book um, pretty much as soon as I saw the movie. It's a great book, um, but I think this movie expands upon it in so many ways and just makes it so much richer. Abby Ryder Forrester, who plays um, Margaret, is so good. Abby is that age, looks that age, feels that age. And it I just felt so transported back to being a preteen. And it was so magical and emotional. And it was such a cool movie going experience. I saw it in the Upper West Side um, in a theater full of women of every generation. There were women in their 40s who were clearly there with their mothers. There were preteens. There were teens. I was there solo. And it it felt like such a community. And I'm definitely going to talk about that about some other movies on my list. But this one was really, really, really special. And I hope if you if people haven't seen it yet that they they make time for this one. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful scene you painted at the theater. So this was directed by Kelly Freeman Craig. Uh, I really loved her first movie, Edge of 17. Um, so, good. so I was really jazzed about this, even though I'm not familiar with the source material. Yeah, I was just really knocked out with not only the performance from Rachel McAdams, but the way they handled and painted that picture. Like, it's not just a sickly, sweet, heartwarming coming of age movie, um, but it is a reflective, like, totality of all the things that come with that age, I, I assume, because I'm not an 11 year old girl and never have been. But um, there's just something wholly lived in with, like, the set design and the warmth from the characters. And just even in the way Rachel McAdams delivers, like, the, it gets tiring trying all the time. Um, this was a truly beautiful movie. I, I'm so happy that you had it at number four. I had it at number six, and I was really just like debating for days and days whether I'd have this or a Boy in the Heron in my top five. But uh, I'm glad that you included it here. Um, beautiful entry at number four. Um, <laughs> beautiful in another way is my number four, uh, which is John Wick Chapter Four. It's not a coming of age in any way, but it is uh, a deftly handled entry into our greatest action franchise debatably um of the 21st century um it's another movie that is close to three hours but is really deserving i guess of that runtime particularly because of the last hour and the set pieces that are there it's so impressive how they've created this universe and built this world and continue to expand it and look into it without dropping in quality like they are able to in this franchise do the rare thing of expanding and going deeper um into the world and to these characters uh, i think donnie yen is a per was a perfect addition to this franchise to play this sort of foil but 
peer of Keanu Reeves and, and John Wick. Again, the Sacre Coeur sequence, the sequence at the Arc de Triomphe, just so sick. And that's not even talking about like the best scene in the movie, which is like that overhead uh, <laughs> sequence through the house with a flamethrowing gun. It feels so silly to have this number four and I have like Killers of the Flower Moon not even on my top five right now. But these guys are just having a whole blast making this. John Wick movies don't always work for me. I think I watched all of them for the first time this year. Um, but this one I got to see in theaters and I don't know if that's part of what made it really hit for me, but it really did. Like I had no complaints about it. Like you said, that like overhead top down through the house sequence is so fucking cool. Like I will be thinking about that forever. I was like on the edge of my seat, like so excited the whole way through it. And then the fact that there's like at least two more incredible set pieces after that. Like it just keeps ratcheting up throughout the whole movie. And like you said, throughout the whole franchise, it's just, it's so much fun. It's so exciting when an action movie is actually this good, like the whole way through. <laughs> Amanda, I'm, have you ever seen a John Wick movie? So I watched John Wick one this year or last year. Um, and it is the epitome of, I wish my brain didn't turn to white noise. Like I watched it and I was like, I get, I get it. Just a big not for me. And I like feel bad. Like I don't want it to seem like I'm like diminishing it or I'm thinking like this is a dumb movie with just like fighting. Like that's not at all what it is. I have like a whole block and I really wish I could have enjoyed these movies more. But I saw the first one um, and then that was it. Look, man, they, these films are majestic action movies. Maybe they're just for action movie lovers, too. Like, uh, Chad Stahelski is a former stuntman, and they just always have had that energy and uh, kind of genuine love for stunts and stunt people and action choreography. Um, Amanda, I, I will bring this back. Have you seen the movie Malignant? Yeah. Okay, you know the overhead sequence in that film? Yes. It's like that, it's but he's like blowing that. people up with a flamethrowing gun. That's crazy. How have you it's, seen Malignant? No, I've only seen like that one scene. Like somebody like oh, okay. posted it on Twitter one day. And I'll, and then so I watched John Wick 4 and I was like, oh, it's just like Malignant, a movie I have not seen. <laughs> okay, we're well, moving on to uh, Amanda's number four. One of the most gorgeous films of the year. Amanda, what do you have as your fourth favorite film of 2023? So I'll just keep like reiterating how much of a difficult time I had with like two through five. Um, so like. This on any day could be my number two. It happens to be today on my number four, but um, it's Celine Song's Past Lives. I think it is one of the more emotionally mature and moving movies that came out this year for sure, but in the last five years. Greta Lee is so mesmerizing, and I haven't stopped thinking about her performance. It's so like tender, and there's so much melancholy in it but is also like so beautiful. And just the idea of Inyun and this idea that like the people in your life are have always been in your life and will always be in your life, even if it, they're changing in minor ways or major ways, like the people you are connected to, that's like how it's supposed to be. I didn't know there was like a word for that. And that's like a feeling I have always felt really deeply. And so I connected to this movie a lot. Um, and I love the way the whole film is set up where like the beginning shot gets explained at the end and it, I just thought it was beautiful. Did you get to see this one in a theater? I didn't. Um, it's actually a funny story. I wanted to see it so badly and I had missed 
seeing it in the theater. Um, it was not available to rent, so I just purchased it. <laughs> and I was like, if this movie is as good as everyone says it is, this was probably in the summer when like the people who had gotten a chance to see it were like, oh, this is a shoe in for my number one picture of the year. And like person after person after person was like, great, we don't have to watch any more movies. Like we did it, guys. Um, I was like, all right, well. My 1999 is gonna go to hopefully everyone's right. Um, so yeah, I just I just have it purchased on iTunes. <laughs> That's incredible. We love trusting uh, the, the the fellow movie friends in your life. Um, we'll definitely be talking about this movie more, but we'll leave it at that for now. There's some beautiful foreshadowing in Amanda's statements there. Um, let's move on to um, Maya and I's collective number three, um, and I'll let Maya start first by just saying hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Um, Zach and I love Barbie. It's our our number three movie of the year. What a friggin' triumph from Greta Gerwig, our our fave. Um, written and directed by Greta Gerwig, also co-written with her partner Noah Baumbach, starring Margot Robbie. I, I mean, everybody saw Barbie, and like, what a special thing it is in the year 2023, or really 2024, that we can talk about a movie that everybody saw and everybody saw in theaters. Like I got to take my entire family to see it. Uh, Mom, dad, sister, we were all in San Diego together. We all dressed up. We got my dad in like a fun, he doesn't have pink, but he had like a fun, like cactus printed shirt. We like went out to dinner beforehand and he like stole our server's pink pen because he was like, my daughters are giving me a hard time. I don't have enough pink. Um, but we went opening weekend and it was so much fun. Um, and I think it's really special to have a movie that was this cultural phenomenon was so much fun, was such a joy, but also is so like smart and insightful and is such a like masterwork of filmmaking. Like I rewatched it last night and it's hard to pick a favorite thing about Barbie but I think for me, it is the production design. It's the fact that it feels so tangible. As a kid who who grew up playing with Barbies, you watch that movie and like you, you can, it feels like you can reach out and touch the dream house. You can touch the car. When the ambulance opens, like that's how the toys work. When the little like stretcher folds down and everything and Greta's use of um, like the painted scrims, like from from the old Hollywood days, it all looks and feels so real, and that feels like an insane thing to say about Barbie Land, a uh, completely made up place. But it looks more real than so many things we're seeing in movies these days. And what I really took away from it the second time is like, I think what Barbie wants more than to be a woman is Barbie wants to be alive. Barbie is so moved when she's first sitting on that park bench by all of the human beings she's seeing, the humans who are laughing with each other, the humans who are fighting with each other. It's like it doesn't matter how hard or messy life is. It's so remarkable to her that people can be alive and experience all of that. And I found that so profound and so moving and a movie that's also like so silly and funny um, and just such a delight. And I, I'm i like so grateful that Warner Brothers and Mattel let Greta do this um, and, and give us this treat because it just – it like made my whole year. Yeah, I think that's beautifully said. Um, 
you know, far be it to be a, the straight guy on the mics talking about what, why this movie is important and, and stellar, but you can just tell this movie is made with a lot of care and love. And I know almost every movie is, but this is such a um, major production. It's, you know, backed by Mattel. It's backed by Warner Brothers. This is a studio thing. But, you know, the set design from Sarah Greenwood and, and Katie Spencer, the costume design from Jacqueline Duran. And then like Margot Robbie as a producer, like seeking out Greta Gerwig and Greta and Noah writing this together and um, the collaboration, the freedom on set. You know, Greta Gerwig's talked about on Lady Bird and Little Women. She's very specific with how she wants to have the lines delivered and, and the actors perform. But this one provided spontaneity and it's cool to see Gerwig grow as a filmmaker in that way, like working with movie stars and allowing them to cook. I think if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably seen a lot of the bloopers um, and other, and other takes and like Ryan Gosling is doing some really special work, um, even in the cuts. But Barbie's one of the biggest name brands in the world, but it's not an MCU film. It's not a franchise yet. Um, and this made a Billy for all the bemoaning about the lack of monoculture. Um, Barbenheimer was a real moment. And that doesn't happen without one, the movies being like really fucking good. And two, you know, it being supported and championed and word of mouth was big and the advertising was big. There were so many Barbie related ads everywhere. Um, so I think uh, it's it's a real achievement in studio filmmaking. Um, I believe Greta Groig has said that they just operated like they were driving a stolen car. Um, and you can see it in how silly everything is and how much fun everything is and how much care they have talking about it. Obviously, they're running for Oscars, but um, it seems like there was like a real appreciation and enjoyment for what they were doing. I love that you brought up um, Margot as a producer on this movie, because since she's also the star, she's obviously, and like you said, she's running. So she is all over the like press circuit right now. And I love hearing her talk about the producing work that she did on this, the, the pitch that she made to Warner brothers um, and everything that she fought for throughout the process. Because I think that like, there's so much about movie producing that audiences, even like those of us like us who want to be in the know, there's so much we don't know about what goes into that. And all three of us are producers. So I know we also have a pretty vested interest in that. And it's so cool how much we've got to learn about like all of that work that that Margot put into this. And it it's it's just so cool to to have learned so much about the movie making process all the while like watching one of the best movies of the year. So this was the movie that I had tied with Asteroid City and that I booted off also because I knew we'd be talking about it and I knew I'd have like an opportunity to give it some flowers. Amanda, but... so why do you hate women? All right, Zach, um, <laughs> I think your connection is ending. Um... <laughs> no, this movie was incredible. This movie was so touching. I cried the first time. I cried harder the second time. It's the movie I saw the most this year. Um, I saw it three times, twice in theaters. Like, it's just, it's such like a connection. And that is like what we needed so much. And it's a connection over something good and fun and beautiful, but but smart, like you said, like an important and not one dimensional. It's not a connection of like, we all hate the same guy who's the president. Like, it's it's a positive force. And it came from the movies this year. And that is like, cannot be understated. Yeah. And I think um, for all the scene stealing and movie stealing that Ryan Gosling is uh, getting lauded for and like deservedly so, the more I watch Barbie, I've watched it a few times now, the more I think about it, I really do think Margot Robbie is giving 
the best performance of the year, just in terms of how hard we know comedy is, the physicality of the performance, the intelligence of the performance. Um, and yeah, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid of like Greta talking about the direction, the very vague direction she gives Margot for each scene and how she executed that. But um, to be the beating heart of a film that is both satirical, entertaining, critical of like commerce, I don't know, and capitalism, but also very heartfelt and meaningful is no small task. And it, she won't win Best Actress. So I don't even know if she'll get a nomination. And there's very deserving other people that will be nominated in Best Actress. But I don't think enough can be said about what Margot Robbie does in this film. Before we move on, I just like wanted to say I don't have him later on when we chat about fam- favorite performances, but I just feel like Kingsley Benadire is getting so <laughs> overlooked. <laughs> he is so, so good so in this good. movie yeah. as the guy who's just like in Ryan Gosling's Ken's shadow. He's so like awkward and earnest and is like, I think funnier than any other Ken besides Ryan. A fun drinking game is to take a drink every single for every item that he's holding throughout the movie. <laughs> like it'll get you hammered. Um, he has both of the drinks. <laughs> has, yeah, both of the ice creams when he has just <laughs> holding a lot of different sports balls um, when yeah. the patriarchy is in, in implemented. Um, it's just special stuff throughout the film like that. Uh, we could talk about this movie forever, but uh, forever. we have a handful of uh, uh, movies um, that we need to talk about as well. Returning to a movie we had talked about earlier <laughs> and, and shifting gears wholeheartedly to a, a different kind of film. Uh, Amanda, at number three, what do you have? I have Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, I've talked about it a bit already when Maya had it on her list, but I just wanted to add a few more things. Like, there are some shots in this film, not to be that guy, but that I like replay in my head all of the time. And like, we talked a little bit about it the other day, Zach, when we were talking, but like the scene where Molly is walking down to discover the body of her sister, and just like every single person's face. And you as the audience have figured it out because everyone is horrified and you're watching her figure it out. It, like, it's so crisp looking. Also, like the, the filmmaking is beautiful. The editing is gorgeous. Like that scene is like so harrowing. But then I also love like when like on her wedding day when she's sitting with all of her sisters and they're like, I can't mar- mm-hmm. believe you married a white boy. But they're like talking in Osage and like that's like so lovely. Like the whole movie isn't incredibly dour well like obviously a lot of it is but like the moments of levity are so fun and like the first time Ernest makes Molly laugh and she's just like like what are you doing like the joy that she brings is so fun and the scene in the very end where it's the the native dance and this it's getting bigger and this camera is getting further away and it seems to go on for the entire three hours, but also like I could have sat there for another 28 hours. Like it was unbelievable. And I I liked your comment earlier, Maya, about Lily Gladstone's like how she can say so much with so little. And it is up against it like parallels Leo's performance, which I think is one of his most over the top performances and not in the like Jordan from Wolf of Wall Street over the top. Like, that's a gratuitous situation. That's totally different. But just, like, a dude who's, like, so racked with emotions and his fucking terrible decision-making and his the horrors he's bringing on his people, on 
his loved ones and people. Um, and just watching like his face the whole time is so over the top and like matched with her just like silence is really like she's so stoic and so beautiful and so honorable. And he's just like fucking everything up for he signed his soul to the devil. Like it's it's just a crazy thing to watch. And I'm also really glad that they decided to do it from almost the um, like from Ernest's perspective, of course, but Molly's perspective as well, because the book is originally from the FBI's perspective. And that is um, Jesse Plemons character who comes in a little more than halfway through. And I'm really glad it wasn't just like, this is how the FBI started. Like, <laughs> that's like not as interesting to me in, as like, let's tell it from like the other side of the story. Yeah, I think to that point of like the shifting of perspective and like some of the criticism about the who was telling the story and whatnot, it's all confronted and addressed in that final scene. I don't know about you guys, but I was I, I was I was kind of shocked at how moved I was like, spoiler alert, skip 15 seconds when Martin Scorsese appears and looks into the camera like, hey, like I did the best I could to tell this story and it's not good enough that it's me. But I also am the one that can bring all these people together. There, there's so much to think about with this film, but it's not a complicated story to dissect. And I think that's such a specific lane to fall into when you're taking a like historical epic like this. Like the the pros, cons, good, bad, evil, and victims are super clear. You don't need Martin Scorsese to tell you that these the genocide is bad. Again, it's three and a half hours, and if you're pressed, like I don't know what you can even cut. I was thinking today about the fire scene when right, yeah. Uncle like sets everything on fire and also like Molly's on like her last legs mm-hmm. and just like the anguish that's ha- like like your scalp feels hot like watching it like you're mad and you're feeling suffocated and like there's and it's just like a f- two scenes like two different sets and for him to evoke like that much feeling out of anybody is incredible. Up until yesterday, I had Killers of the Flower Moon at number three, um, and I had Barbie at number five, and then I ended up flipping them. Um, but I, I think that just goes to show, kind of like we've all been saying, like this year was just so good in movies, and it was very torturous to, to put this list together. And I think we're all still agonizing over it a little bit, even as we're going. This is why every pick has a caveat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of asterisks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, let me put a lot of asterisks on my on the next film we talk about. It, no, it, this movie's it, fucking good. No, it, like, I know, but it just feels unbelievable. Like I, I've thought about it for a long time, and I'm confident in about this film being at my number two. Um, and I make no mistakes about it. It's just like what a wonderful movie year we had. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm saying my number two is Spider-Man Across the Spider Verse. Bless this miracle of a franchise. Like if you're looking at it on its face, a sequel of an animated superhero film. It has three directors and three writers credited. That sounds like a disaster. And yet, it's one of the most like visceral, emotional, hilarious, maximalist entries any movie of the last like 10 years. I think the Spider-Verse movies are kind of a testament to animation not being a genre, but a method through which to tell stories. Like you cannot tell across the Spider-Verse in any other way. Like you don't get those sequences with Gwen Stacy in another film and it and it be as impactful as it is um i think the vocal performances are beautiful um shameek moore uh for all the struggles he has on a press tour trying to create chemistry with his co-stars is 
an incredible Miles Morales, Haley Steinfeld, Brian Tyree Henry. Um, and I think uh, Lauren Velez as Rio, Miles' mom, has one of the most beautiful monologues of the year. There's so much heart in these films, but also so much hilarity. And also serves the fanboys and the nerds who want to see and dig frame by frame. I, I adore these movies. I adore this movie. Um, I cried twice watching it. Um, and it's a rewarding rewatch, too. So um, it is truly like my second favorite movie of the year. I think it is so deserving to be on a list. And I was really grateful that you had put it on your list because then at like three in the morning the other day, I was like, oh, my God, Spider-Man. Where am I going to put Spider-Man? <laughs> like, I was like so stressed. And I was like, OK, Zach did it. We'll, t- we'll talk about it. Um, no. So this is the first movie I got to review, which is like the biggest honor ever. Um, so Spider-Manda. Spider-Manda lives on forever. Those who know, who know. Um, but every single frame of this movie is a piece of art. Like that is just like, even if you don't care about all of the different spider worlds that he goes to visit, like you can appreciate that with no other indication, you know when you're in Gwen Stacy's world because the backdrop is watercolors of blue and purple and white. And it is no longer like, a sketched version of whatever. Like you could watch this without having watched the first one and not be like, I cannot follow what's happening where that is, I think ruining IP right now. This idea that like you have to know them all to get any of them. Yeah. There was some criticism uh, of this film levied at it because it ends on a cliffhanger, uh, which I wholly reject. Um, I think there's a lot of great movies in the history of cinema and great stories that both set up later parts of a story while still telling a full story um all you have to do is like this movie opens with gwen and her arc is full once uh the film comes to an end i'm not to compare it to like i don't know empire strikes back or like the other great cliffhanger movies of all time but um i think this is one i I have no idea if the third one could even possibly live up um to the expectations put on it but i think the fact that across the spider-verse capitalized and boosted and expanded upon into the spider-verse which is considered like the greatest animated superhero movie and one of the greatest animated movies ever um is is stunning like amanda said i'm so glad you had it on your list um I love that you touched on on Gwen's world because that's my favorite part of the whole thing. Um, Gwen's entire arc is so magical and emotional and well thought out. Um, I think it's incredibly queer coded and is like so powerful in how subtle that is and how well executed that is. Um, and it it just kind of like knocked me um, over a little bit when I watched it. I was so moved by that. And I love, Zach, that you highlighted Rio because, I mean, what a year for moms this year, right? Like, such great moms in our movies in 2023. Some powerhouse, like, mom monologues. Um, And, I mean, Rio's right up there with all of them. Like, truly one of the best of the best. All right. Let's move on to uh, another meticulously and maximalistly crafted movie. Um, The other half of one of the biggest movie events of the last few years. Amanda, your number two. My number two is Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Own it. Don't say it like that. Yeah. No, no. I'm so proud. I, I literally was going into like how to talk about something like this. It feels too big to hold in my hands. Um, come, someone may say it feels atomic. Um, <laughs> no, this is- Some might. <laughs> No, this movie was absolutely incredible. Um, I got to see it in IMAX both times I saw it. I'm so glad I saw it a second time because it like instantly 
moved up like so much higher on the rankings for me um, that I was able to like let everything sort of wash over me and I wasn't trying to like keep up with the plot Um, because there's a lot of there's like a lot of politics involved. There's a lot of science involved. Like I totally understand people who are like, I don't really know what happened. So um, I'm good. Thanks, though. Um, but the Trinity test scene, I went with some friends the first time and one of our friends like turned over to me and was like, did you breathe <laughs> through that whole thing? And I was like, no, <laughs> like, there's no way. And he's like, I thought you held your breath. <laughs> like, I wasn't sure. I just gushed about Christopher Nolan and we'll, you'll hear it all soon next week, listeners. But I think that no one is making movies at this scale that are this entertaining with this much craft that can grab millions of people to watch it and can also like use no CGI to set off an atomic bomb. Like it's just so gripping. And like I watched a video about how he made the scenes in toward the beginning when Oppenheimer is like having the nightmares about nuclear fusion and like the sparks and the lights and like how did he create that and it's like all in a little box that he made and he like shot like a pinhole camera inside of it like it's just like inc incredible um so yeah Oppenheimer's my second favorite movie of the year I think like Amanda said we talk about Christopher Nolan at length um in our movie swap but gotta say it again and again like his ability to create momentum and energy in the way he edits montages and um, Jennifer Lamb is the editor on the film, but um, it's just the Nolan trait. Like nobody cross cuts quite like him in movies today um, to tell a, a full story, like 40 minutes in 50 minutes in like breathless. Um, and, and then Matt Damon shows up and then you're in like a Hollywood heist getting the gang together movie. Um, and then Matt Damon says, I'll let you know more if I can. And then, and then it's a, a courtroom drama with Robert Downey Jr. reminding everybody he can act. I think Christopher Nolan always kind of puts a proxy in for himself in every single one of his movies. Like Robert Pattinson is like Christopher Nolan in Tenet. Killian Murphy as J. Robert Oppenheimer is also Christopher Nolan putting together people to create something bigger than themselves. Um, and that's so clear if you like have any interest or care about the people behind the films. I almost forget that Killian Murphy is giving like the performance of the year as well. In this totally internal, emotional, visceral, tortured portrayal of a great man. Um, we've seen a million of these, but somehow he just adds this little special sauce. And maybe that special sauce is his icy blue eyes. Um, but he just has an endlessly curious and watchable um, way about performing. Yeah, there's just something about like a look he can play on his face of like, um, this is too much. <laughs> I really loved him. I think this is a big year for like hair and makeup and costume design, but also actor performances and like conveying youth and maturity. And mm -hmm. I love his performance of like young Oppenheimer. And I also just really love his like flappy little curls when he's like in college. <laughs> he's so cute. Um, and it's like wild how, how much you, it feels like you see him grow and mature, even though, like it's the same dude playing him and there's no like de-aging or anything happening. Um, he like does such a good job of like conveying everything he's learned and that like almost physical weight upon him as, as everything progresses. 
Um, and it's it's like a real masterclass performance. Well, to uh, go to another meticulously made movie featuring a performance that embodies the growth over time and perhaps a clubhouse leader of another category, Best Actress, um, Maya, let's talk about your number two movie of 2023. Yeah, so my number two movie is uh, Yorgos Lanthimos' Poor Things, um, starring the phenomenal Emma Stone. I've never seen a Yorgos Lanthimos film, and obviously like a lot of the movies this year – we went into them with like all of this like pressure and hype and expectation. We've heard so much about like, oh, it's so good. Like this is going to be one of the best movies of the year. And I never like doubted that from anyone. But I think this one like really surprised me the most. I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. Everyone's saying it's good. But like I was – I felt like I was like on the edge of my seat the whole time just like, oh, my God. It's so – smart and funny and emotional and like infuriating and heartbreaking like throughout the whole journey and i i felt so connected to bella baxter like watching her go from a child to an adult watching her essentially become the smartest person in the room emma stone is unreal in this movie the command that she has over literally every like centimeter of her body. Like pick a like square inch of her forehead and like she can move the skin there in a certain way to convey being an infant trapped in like an adult body or being a grown woman in this body. Like she's the one to beat this year for sure. Amanda, you have this at your number one as a person who loves Yorgos Lothmos and a person who loves Arizona born Emma Stone. What made this your favorite movie of 2023? So I co-sign on everything Maya said. I walked out of that movie and felt that Bella Baxter is a real person in the world and is separate from Emma Stone. Like the way people felt about Tar, I was like, oh, this woman exists and this is she's just in this movie. It's so hypnotic what Emma Stone does for this performance. And I know that she had years to work on it. Um, they started writing it right after The Favorite. I think this is possibly every single one of these actors' best performances. Um, and I think that something that's like so important for me to note is that Rami Youssef, who plays Max McCandles, this is his first like large film. He has an A24 TV show. He writes a lot. He produces a lot. He's involved in The Bear. Like He's kind of everywhere right now. But for him to like hold his own against Emma Stone and then Willem Dafoe throughout the entire film is just remarkable. Um, another thing that I really wanted to note um, is that in an interview with Emma Stone, I found out that they built every single one of those sets to be a living set. So like when they're in Lisbon and there's like all these very like wonky looking buildings that like she's walking in and out of like they built four story tall buildings at angles that like anybody could stand in and they did it so much so that like they could stand on the um like the barrister and film her when she notices the opera singer and then she can turn around and like where the cameraman was standing is now the singer and like that is just so it's like so smart it's such incredible filmmaking and there is the only thing that cgi is the ocean in the whole film i think that 
some of the initial reviews was that it's sort of like woke Barbie. And I think that is like completely diminishing the point of the film. But I understand we had two very strong movies about women coming into their own and becoming actualized and realizing what it means to be a woman of the world. And like Maya said earlier about Barbie, like she wants to be alive more than she wants to be a woman. I feel like Bella Baxter feels very similarly. It's probably my favorite movie of the last like five years. I love that Emma Stone, who is the movie star probably between her and Margot, honestly, and has accomplished so much at like 34 or 35, is just in her like freak face. Like she's just going to do some weird shit. And that weird shit is also going to take advantage of every bit of her like natural comedic talent and dramatic talent. And it's just very exciting that um, this pairing has found each other. Yeah. Earlier this year, I talked about how I think that Euroscientimos is becoming like one of my favorite directors. There's a lot of like care in his movies. It's a lot different than like the twisted, perverted mind of David Fincher. Like it's just like crazy in different ways. Um, but Maya, I think you should watch The Favorite like as soon as you possibly oh, yeah. can. Like yeah. that's such Maya shit. You're gonna love it. I really want to. I love how how this movie was so like twisted and on on its face like very absurd and out there i love when something is like so crazy and wacky but somebody is using that crazy wackiness to actually actually tell you something that's like so deeply human um and i think that that is like he threads that needle like in a pitch perfect way throughout this whole movie um, and I, it definitely makes me want to see everything else he's done. Beautiful pick for Amanda's number one. So Maya and I share a number one. Um, we're really in sync uh, this year on, on our lists. And we've talked about this earlier in the pod. Um, Maya and I's number one movie of 2023 is Past Lives. I think I've said this a few times, but this is truly like a meticulously crafted joy to watch. It's maybe not as expansive as, you know, Killers of the Flower Moon or Poor Things, but it does still feel titanic in its own way. And it threads the needle perfectly because there's a lot of this film and the screenplay that's like, wow, look at this very basic interaction and like, look at the wind blowing and the people smiling. And that can be kind of earnest and like corny and and imagine video-y. And it avoids all of that. Um, I think that it's in the specificity of the story it's telling of an immigrant story. And the first time watching this, I just remember being so taken, confused, and endeared by the chemistry between Greta Lee, Tao Yu, and John Morago that this movie is without an antagonist. Even though conventionally you would expect John Morago's character to be that antagonist keeping Tao Yu and Greta Lee apart. But it has a lot of empathy for that character. It has a lot of empathy for the choices that both of these characters make in reconnecting and then kind of breaking off that connection and then coming back together, you know, decades after they had first met. I said it, I think, on our summer movies pod, Amanda, but um, I think this is my favorite shot film of the year. Um, the cinematography is from uh, Shabir Kirchner. Um, also, apologies if I'm saying your name wrong, but there's so many long lenses that kind of, um, when you're looking at Nora and Sung, there's so much being said in just like the body language, in the in again the chemistry, the way they play off each other, and again the between Sung and Arthur, th- they find a dynamic too that's like familiar in its awkwardness. And I I love even just the story it's telling of like the space Arthur is giving and the confidence that he has in his marriage to let Nora experience this like catharsisism of like reconnecting with her past that she had wholly let go of. The final scene is 
one of the most stunning of the year of the last few years, um, both on its face and when you read into the shots more and how things are angled and like it didn't feel like a therapized movie. We have a lot of therapy speak in movies um, today, which is great, like very pro therapy. But writing a film and a story beyond those things or like past just the phrases that you would hear in those conversations is an accomplishment. I'm very excited for what Celine Song has coming next. So I did get to see this in theaters. And if you have seen it, you know that you have that like devastating final scene and then it's silent when it goes into the credits and all you can hear is like everyone in the theater like (laughs) sniffling and like I I guess it wouldn't be like a best of the year pod without me getting emotional Um, (laughs) but like I'm getting emotional thinking about it and I saw a friend right after we were meeting up for something uh, and she was like oh what movie did you see and I said I saw past lives you should see it and I can't tell you anything else about it or I will just start crying on the street. Like I can't talk about this movie. And I think this is the first time I've talked about it since then and I am getting emotional. Like, I don't know if you know like anything about me, it's like 0% surprising that I loved this movie and it's 0% surprising that it like felt like being stabbed in the heart a hundred times. But it's so remarkable. And I know that I just said that like one of my favorite things is like, weird, wacky, crazy movies that are actually like deeply human. But this kind of like, are you there, God, it's me, Margaret, is so honest and unapologetic and realistic in like what it means to be human and how complicated your feelings can be. And that like, even if you are kind of messy in in some of those thoughts, and maybe you've, you hurt people along the way and navigating what those things are, it doesn't make you a bad person. Like you said, Zach, it's, everybody is is treated with such empathy in this film. And there is no antagonist. You're not really mad at at Nora for what she did to Sung. You're not really mad at her with what she did to her husband. Like, you're just like, yeah, I get it. And so many people have had experiences like that in their life or are going to have experiences like that in their life. And there was just like something so profoundly moving about this movie. I think that there's so much to extract from every frame, from every line of dialogue. And I think that as much as I loved it this time, there's there's so much more for me to get from it. Um, and it's it's like so phenomenal. I hope that everybody gets a chance to see it. Yeah, to the point of uh, how it opens up to the more you watch it, because it's a pretty simple story, but there is a lot to be gleaned from rewatches. The first time I rewatched it, what kind of unlocked it as more than just like a a fraught romance or a, or a love triangle type of story is when Nora says, I don't speak Korean to anybody except for you and my mom. And yes. I think that captures every bit of the complicated feelings that she's having mm-hmm. um, and why she is battling between holding on to this relationship and this friendship and letting it go. And what those things really mean. It's more than just the potential romance of it all that I think Tail You beautifully like talks about in the bar scene when he's talking about the possibilities that he's imagined. But all the tears that come out of Nora, I think, translate to that exact point. Like he is her connection back to the life that they left so long ago when she had a different name. Mm-hmm. And that's such a universal experience for so many people wherever you are in your life like it doesn't even have to just be an immigrant story it could just be like i moved to new york city and had to become a different person to protect myself 
so I could thrive. And I think packing that into a movie like this is incredible, incredible movie making and, and writing. And that's why it's such a fulfilling movie for me to watch every single time. The movie is really sincere. Mm-hmm. And I feel like sincerity is really easy to get wrong and to have it feel cringy. And like, I like it's hard to buy somebody else's sincerity. And the movie just brings you there immediately. And you're like, oh, I'm, I'm in. Like, I totally understand what's going on. Um, and it does develop into a movie about, you know, it's a metaphor for your identity and especially as a, an immigrant or anybody with a anybody with a secondary identity to an American person um, and things like that. And I just think it is uh, it's just really gorgeous. Yeah. Um, OK, uh, now that we've cried, um, that means we've made it through our lists. Let's recap for everybody. Amanda, why don't you go first? Five to one. Your top movies of 2023. My number five is Asteroid City, four is Past Lives, three is Killers of the Flower Moon, two is Oppenheimer, and one is Poor Things. Maya? Um, At five, I've got Killers of the Flower Moon. At four, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Barbie in at number three, Poor Things at number two, and my number one movie of the year was Past Lives. And mine is number five, The Boy and the Heron. At number four, John Wick, chapter four. At number three is Barbie. At number two is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. And at number one, Past Lives. Uh, We made it through our list. I think we need to take a little bit of a break. Maybe get some tissues, blow our noses, refill our drinks. But uh, don't go anywhere because we have a lot of categories to go through and more movies to talk about. Welcome back. We went through our top fives, but now it's time to uh, go through some categories just so we could shepherd in some other movies we love this year because the slate was very rich. So um, we're going to start with favorite performances and just kind of go through these um, rather quickly. But um, Maya, why don't you start with uh, some of your favorite performances of the year? So we've obviously highlighted like a bunch in our in our top fives, and those are probably like my actual favorite performances of the year. Um, But I want to just like give a huge shout out to Dominic Sessa and the holdovers it's so mind-blowing because if, if you guys listening don't know the story, he was, like, literally just, like, discovered on the campus where they were shooting this film. Like, he just goes to school there. He's never, like, acted before, really. And to just, like, go toe-to-toe with Paul Giamatti and give such a, like, honest, lived-in um, performance of this, like, deeply troubled kid – I spent the whole movie watching him being like, he reminds me of someone and I still haven't figured out if it's his face or his personality or what it was. But I think that like whatever it is that is a further testament to like his performance that he felt that real and that relatable that I truly spent the whole movie being like, do I like know that guy? Um, I have to give like a huge shout out to Jacob Elordi for just like everything he did in 2023. Totally. Brilliant. <laughs> I'm a little late to the Jacob Alerty train, and oh boy, am I on it. <laughs> I'm happy to be the conductor of the train, if need be. <laughs> if the job is open, I'm applying. <laughs> he is, I, I don't know, he's, he's I mean, so tall. 
he's so tall and so tall is not usually my thing but oh my god he is so tall and he is so handsome and I just love his face and his personality and his his little purses and when he walks around with a book in his pocket his little eyebrow piercing his little eyebrow piercing uh he's just I don't know he he gave such like two like remarkably different performances this year in um Priscilla as Elvis and in in Saltburn but one thing that both of those female directors knew is that that boy is hot. <laughs> they were really tapped into it, and I enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed all of the press he's done this year, everything. So, like, shout out to Jacob Alordi. And then I got to give it up to Snoop. <laughs> this is iconic. The dog in Anatomy of a Fall. Um, I got to look up the actual. Oh, I did. The actual dog's name is Messy. Um, his character's name is Snoop, as in Snoop Dog. And, uh, you guys, if you haven't seen this movie, literally maybe the best dog performance I've ever seen. Like, it's, like, not even really a joke. Like, it's kind of a bit, but it's also kind of not. It's, like, pretty haunting um, and a little bit traumatizing, but, like, so good. I wanted to say two things about your your picks. Dominic Sessa, so I saw the movie again in theaters, and you forget how much of a shithead he is in the beginning. Yeah. Like, when I, like, re-saw it, I was like, Dude, shut up. And then I was like, oh, yeah, that's like part of how good this is, is that like he has such a big transformation. So shout out to Dominic Sessa, the best. When he throws the brownie, it's like one of the best <laughs> things I've ever seen. And I'm really excited for Jacob Lordy's career. And I'm also glad that you have it on here. So we got to at least touch on Priscilla, a movie yeah. I also was like, where do I put this? Yeah. There's a lot I want for production design, but um, her team did amazing for that film as well. And he plays a very good Elvis. The way his height is utilized in that movie is so perfect for the story that um, that it tells. So I think those are some great shouts. Snoop uh, in Anatomy of a Fall really giving Sandra Huller a run for her money in terms mm-hmm. of best performance in that movie. But we'll talk more about Anatomy of a Fall for sure. Um, Amanda, what were some of your favorite performances? Yeah. So before I saw Poor Things, I saw Past Lives. And that was like in the running for like, well, Nora's a real person. Um, that's great. I'm glad that exists. Um, I think Greta Lee just totally encapsulated what it that character was always meant to be, and I'm so lucky to have seen it play out in my lifetime. Um, the next one is a movie that I thought was uh, wild, but did not come close to my top five, but also maybe the movie I've thought about the most this year. Um, and it's because of the central performance of Joaquin Phoenix in Bo is Afraid. That movie is truly just an anxiety spiral for two straight hours. It never lets up. But I like Joaquin Phoenix and I really like Ari Aster. So I was like seated in day one and holy cow, I needed some deep breaths afterwards. And I think that wouldn't have been the case. And Ari's like vision wouldn't have been like, wouldn't have been like encapsulated if Joaquin Phoenix wasn't such a good actor. So um, next one is Dev Patel. He was in one of the many uh, Wes Anderson minis that came out this year so he was in the uh henry sugar the first one and immediately i was like okay so next full feature film like he's the main character like he has they have to link up again um and then my last one is also an anatomy of the fall shout the other half of snoop uh is the the young boy milo machado grainer another actor like dominic sessa that had not acted before and he is very eye-catching in a movie with excellent performances. So I wanted to give him some some shouts as well. All right, Zach, what about you? You have some really 
banger choices as well. The first performance, I just watched The Iron Claw a couple days ago, finally, yes. um, and really debated putting it in my top five. What a stunning film. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> the movie just fucking rips like dudes rock and also dudes should go to therapy. Anyway, among the many favorite performances, Zac Efron is just truly stunning as Kevin Von Erich. And I don't know if this is like a take or not, but like I always felt like Zac Efron had this in him um, and just hadn't been given the material um, or wasn't in the place in his life to give this kind of performance. But the dramatic parts in like handling um, what should be like a lot of moments in the film that are like too cliche that you roll your eyes. But because of Zac Efron's performance in the film, like it feels grounded in reality and lived in and you know he's in his 30s now and he's lived a lot of life and he has this weathered aspect to him now i hope it kickstarts this like cool run of dramatic roles he has like some pretty dumb looking comedies coming up uh on his filmography but i, I was really blown away by zach efron another surprising dramatic performance that i was blown away by was tiana taylor in a thousand and one um it's av rockwell's debut film that kind of talks about the story of a very specific Harlem. I think Maya, you shouted out like performances that span a period of time. And Tiana Taylor in this film is doing exactly that. Also very excited for what may come for Tiana Taylor. Also a revelation um, and somebody that Maya, you and I were just so jazzed about once we saw this film together is Amon Vellani in the Marvels. We might be the only best of the year pod <laughs> who includes discussion about the Marvels, but I have to shout it out because Amon Vellani is just so charming and winning and funny and the chemistry she has with everybody in that cast from Samuel L. Jackson to Brie Larson to Tiana Paris. Uh, the Marvels is an imperfect movie, but it's also a really fun time and mm -hmm. it could have gone really wrong um, if if Amon was not as charming as she is. I wish that she got a full press tour for everybody to learn um, that aspect of herself, um, but unfortunately it wasn't because the strikes were still happening, but she's a star and I hope she continues to get a spotlight. And then lastly, just wanted to shout out Marshawn Lynch for being in Bottoms. Like, what a miracle. <laughs> we haven't talked about Bottoms enough. Like, so funny. Io Debris and uh, Rachel Sennett are obviously like the standouts, but like Marshawn Lynch is perfect. And I, I just am so confused as to how he got included into that film. I just love that he ad-libbed all of his lines. Like right. he did not have scripted lines. Let's go to favorite scene. I think this is a, a stacked one as well. Zach, why don't we just stay with you? Uh, give us your favorite scenes of the year. So uh, we're once again talking about Anatomy of a Fall. There is a central fight in the film, and not to get too much into it, but it's an audio recording that then cuts to an actual scene between Cassandra Huller and Samuel Tice. And it's like as good a fight as like in Marriage Story or uh, Before Midnight. And it's also a scene that like kind of points toward this subtext of the importance of the point of view and who is telling the story and anatomy of a fall is just like this fascinating story um and fascinating courtroom drama uh and i thought that that fight was so nasty and entertaining and also like i couldn't figure out who i felt was right which i think is a real good crux of the story another kind of set piece that was stunning for me was in uh the movie maestro uh an imperfect but beautiful movie i thought and the is it Ellie Cathedral? Eli Cathedral? That's in the center of the film is like a seven minute unbroken shot of Bradley Cooper conducting. That's the one moment where like it felt like the magic of the character and 
of the music that is part of the film was like put in the spotlight. And then lastly, to shout out Iron Claw once again, um, the montage set to Tom Sawyer by Rush. I wanted to raise my fist and say, hell yeah, Von Eric bros, like you wrestle. It's the hell yeah brother scene of the year. I mentioned the scene in my review and I only get 600 words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, just from Jeremy Allen White pumping iron and turning around and like smiling to hearing this song to them, the three brothers like walking down the um, to the ring. The synchronized kick. It's like, yeah. During that it's, scene is so it's good. It's so good. It's it just fucking rocks. Um those are my favorite scenes. Uh Maya, why don't we bounce to you? What were your favorites? Um so I'll start off with um Maestro kind of following your lead there. There's this beautiful beautiful dream ballet um in the first third of the film in the black and white portion where Lenny is showing Felicia the like quote unquote unserious work he does where he's composing music for Broadway and you get to see Bradley Cooper like dance and it's just like the whole thing is so well realized. And I just like 2023, this isn't on my list, but like 2023 was such a like year for the dream ballet revival between this and I'm just Ken. And like, that is, <laughs> that's my shit. I love it so much. I I told Zach this after he had seen Maestro that like in that, the first time I watched it, I, like I was literally, I was like giddy watching the Dream Ballet. I was so excited and I felt just as excited the second time I watched it. Um, I think it's like a real uh, testament to Bradley Cooper's work as a director. Um, and then this is a little silly, but I want to give a shout out to the live action, uh, The Little Mermaid that came out this year. <laughs> deeply, deeply flawed movie. <laughs> but I rewatched this scene just a couple days ago and I was thinking about stuff to put here. And it's it's the Kiss the Girl performance and while that does feature pretty heavily the cgi animals who are not good the performance of of ariel and eric is like this i've seen the little the original little mermaid a hundred times i know what happens when i saw it in theaters and literally when i watched it again two days ago like I'm on the edge of my seat. I have butterflies. Like their chemistry is like electric. And I'm like, kiss her, kiss her, kiss her. <laughs> it's so cute. They're so cute. It's so sweet. It has this magic that I will go so far to say, I don't think the original movie has in that scene. Um, and then I have to give a shout out. I feel like I shout something out like this every year on this pod. Well, speaking of chemistry. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> it's the car chase sequence um, in Rome with... Haley Atwell and Tom Cruise in their like little Fiat, I think it is, uh, with their handcuffed together. Oh my god, it's so good. Their tr- their chemistry, like you said, literally electric. It's so funny. Tom Cruise, as we all know, like cares a lot about how he looks and how he comes across in his movies. But something that I love in at least these Mission Impossible movies these days is he's not afraid to like let himself look kind of dumb and goofy. Like, like there's a performance anxiety joke in this scene and it's so funny <laughs> every time. And like Haley Atwell just slots right into this, like the seventh movie in this franchise. And it feels like she's always been there. Not everything about this movie hit for me, but that part really did. It's like electric. That's definitely some screwball comedy it's, type yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's good they're stuff. Pulling off there. For your maestro pick, I just wanted to also say I think it's a really beautiful way to 
sort of showcase him coming out to her. Mm-hmm. Like, there's never a conversation of like, look, Felicia, I love you, but I like, this is not the real me. You either got to get the real me or the like, and that like totally could have happened. There's so many beautiful scenes in Maestro, including a fight that's punctuated by another Snoop dog. Who abandoned Snoopy in the vestibule? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, Amanda, you love Mission Impossible 7. You're, obviously, your favorite scene is when they talked about the entity. <laughs> I didn't mind the entity that much, <laughs> yeah. though I didn't care for this movie No, but what, what scenes did you love this year? <laughs> um, I already talked about the Trinity test um, in Oppenheimer, but that's definitely one of my favorite fil- like scenes of the year. It's flawless filmmaking. Loved that one. Um, similarly, breathtaking, the death scene in Killers of a Flower Moon, where she's greeted by the... Uh, her ancestors is really beautiful. It's honorable. It's really sincere, like we were talking about earlier. That is like one of the many scenes of Killers that has like really stuck with me. Just another movie I wanted to shout out, but a really funny scene that I've been thinking about and probably will forever is there's a scene in American Fiction, which is written and directed by Cord Jefferson of Tucson, Arizona. Just <laughs> don't can never forget the fake book that the main character writes is up for number one it's like five book critics are supposed to be debating what the top 10 books of the year are and two of them are black the other one is Issa Rae and then it's three just like very classic white liberals who think that they're smart and the three white people want this book to be number one and the two black people are like, this feels so inauthentic of the actual black experience. So we don't think it should be number one. And they're like split on a table. And one of them says, I just think it's really important to listen to black voices right now. And it's three to two. So it's going to take number one. And it's just like <laughs> a clear representation of like, People who think that they're doing the right thing with race and are not at all. I can't wait to watch that movie. It's really funny. It was another one where I was like, how do I talk about this movie? But I just don't think it is as seen. So I, I don't want to ruin it for anyone. But that scene is really funny. Um, but my number, like, these aren't ranked, but my number one scene that I literally cannot shut up about and, like, have the screenplay downloaded so that I can print this page and literally use it as wall art because it is so meaningful to me. I cried again this year or, like, last night when I watched it. This was the moment the movie turned for me where I was like, oh, this is actually a masterpiece. It is the conversation between Jason Schwartzman's character and Adrian Brody's character in Asteroid City, where the actor is talking to the director. He breaks that wall and he goes and talks to him um, and he has this conversation. I have it pulled up if I could just say cite it, if that's fine. Um, <laughs> but so it starts with the actor, which is Jason Schwartzman. He's saying, I feel lost. Director, good. I still don't understand the play. Good. He's such a wounded guy. He had everything he wanted, then lost it. Before he even noticed. I feel like my own heart is broken. Own personal heart every night. Good. Do I just keep doing it? Yes. Without knowing anything? Yes. Isn't there supposed to be some sort of answer, like out there in the cosmic wilderness? What's Woodrow's line about the meaning of life? Maybe there is one. Right. Well, that's my question. I still don't understand the play. It doesn't matter. Just keep telling the story. You're doing him right. And to me, I was like, like, oh, that's what life is about. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, you don't know what is happening. You don't know if the character you are playing is right. 
And the answer is to just keep going. The answer is, it doesn't matter. You just have to keep telling the story. And I like, that's, I think about it all the time. And I think that is finally the point where Wes like captured, it's been a hard year, dad, after like 10 movies in between. Um, I love that movie. I love that scene so much. So that was my favorite scene of the year. That's beautiful. That was beautifully done, beautifully cited, and beautifully done by Wes Anderson himself. He always has a tendency to surprise you with uh, what he can do, even though his style is so formulaic. And to that point, uh, we're going to talk about our biggest surprises of the year. Oh, what a transition, Zach. It was all right. It was okay. Um, And uh, why don't we start with Maya's surprises of the year? Zach teed me up perfectly. Two of my big surprises this year were both Poison and The Swan. Um, Poison also features Dev Patel, and The Swan is this great story about a bully. They're both very emotional um, and pretty serious, but still have that charm and that style that you you just love to see from Wes. And they're also real short, real sweet, so easy for anybody to catch if you haven't yet. Another big surprise for me, I think it was a, a big surprise for kind of the mm-hmm. film like Twitter world at the very least in general was Godzilla minus one. The only Godzilla movies I've seen are, I don't even know like what the verse is called, but like (laughs) whatever led us to Godzilla versus Kong, uh, I think two years ago now, those are the only movies I'm familiar with. Obviously like I kind of know the Godzilla history and like if you're, you know, looking for a great, for something to pair with Oppenheimer instead of Barbie, maybe watch Godzilla minus one. Um, Can't believe we got both of those this year. Godzilla minus one is like still a fabulous monster movie. And yet in like woven through all of that is like a very genuine heartfelt story that um, like really tugs on the heartstrings. I'm sitting there at the movie, like icy in hand crying <laughs> at multiple points in it. Some really phenomenal performances, it's, like such a treat and also always fun to like see a foreign film in theaters. And my theater was packed. So like I said, I think it was a big surprise for a lot of people. Um, and I think it was quite a word of mouth hit and, um, that was really fun. And then my last surprise, I just got to give a shout out to the Dungeons and Dragons movie. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, I'm a Chris Pine head have been since the very beginning. So I don't know anything about Dungeons and Dragons besides like stranger things. Um, but I knew I would be seated for this and it's so much fun. It's so funny. It's like such a delight from start to finish. One of the best cameos ever in it. Uh, I don't want to spoil it if you haven't seen it, but watch it. <laughs> um, and just like a blast. I want like a hundred more of these movies. I, I do hope they make a hundred more of these. Yeah. <laughs> this is fun. I think the fact that it's not awful was like a, a genuinely pleasant surprise. Yeah. There's one of my three surprises. That's why it's on the list. Yeah. yeah. I mean, let's just go to it now, Amanda. What were your surprises of the year? Okay. So we'll just start off with the one that I literally was like, well, this is going to be abhorrent. Um, and then afterwards, I was like, that was pretty good. Um, and it's Wonka, uh, the Timothy Chalamet masterpiece. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, it's not that good. But <laughs> it, it was fun. Like, I, again, was expecting it to be really terrible. And because it wasn't the worst movie I saw all year, Wonka is in my biggest surprises films. Real Timmy Tim needed his moment to shine. Yes, he did. I completely agree. Um, Iron Claw is also on my list, a movie I went in just being like, it'll be a sports film about brothers. I don't know any, I didn't know anything about the Von Erics, which like 
You can imagine what a blindsiding situation it was. Yeah, you didn't like, expect to have like male virgin suicides. Yeah, it was a lot. Um, it, I saw it with my sister at a screener. It was crazy. My last big surprise was No Hard Feelings. Uh, J-Law, the comedian, is is back. It's, are we at the point, Amanda, where you can say you just like Jennifer Lawrence? <laughs> no. Uh, I like, oh I, I like the decisions she has been making in the last two films. Um, this movie is fucking so funny. It was yeah. the, easily the funniest movie of the year. It is to me easily the funniest movie. It's come out a really long time. Um, no hard feelings is like a true blown studio comedy, and I'm very happy we had it. I almost put um Andrew Barth Feldman from uh, No yeah. Hard Feelings on my favorite performances. That was another kind of like breakout young yeah. white boy who, like again, like really held his own toe-to-toe with like one of our best movie stars these days and he he was great in it there was a lot of unexpected singing this year and he had one of the better ones well he i was gonna say he's like a broadway actor and i was nervous that it would not translate um and he did great all right my surprises of the year Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem, speaking of the influences of the Spider-Verse. Super fun. Yeah, super fun. I, we finally have a good Ninja Turtles movie in the 21st century. <laughs> Shout out to Seth Rogen and Evan Goldman for this miracle of a little thing. I'm a simple man who loves it when four brothers work together. Also really good um, voice work. Yes. And, and also I, really good voice work from AOA Debris. Yeah, <laughs> true. Man, Bottoms, the Bottoms duo had a great year. We haven't yeah. talked a lot about Rachel Sennett either, but um strong strong stuff all around creed 3 it seems dumb for me to have it as a surprise but i had so low expectations for michael b jordan's directorial debut but i loved all the anime references in the in the action sequences i think the the boxing scenes are pretty singular um and i think there's like a lot to like about michael, what michael b jordan did in the film um and then my last surprise was are you there god it's me margaret um not because i didn't expect something great like i said i loved edge of 17 um but i was very moved by the film for the, all the reasons that we've cited another category we decided to add this year is our best theater experience or our favorite theater experience and uh i'll start first um my favorite theater experience was going to see the marvels with Maya at a press screening. Oh, yeah. I don't know if that's lame to choose a press screening. It's literally but- all I've been doing. <laughs> no, I but like so many of these at a screening. <laughs> I know, but like just for this particular category, like Maya and I's expectations were so low. And then you kind of felt this like building wave of like, oh, this is going to be a good time. Oh, like fine. this is going to be a fun time at the theater. You could tell it was like a two worlds thing where like film Twitter and film criticism was like, this is going to suck. This is going to bomb. The fanboys were like, fuck this movie. And then you go to the theater and like everybody's laughing, everybody's smiling, everybody's cheering um, like the good old days of the MCU. Shout out to Maya for giving me the guest pass uh, to, to join her at the screening. Uh, that was that was like one of my favorite moments of the year. I love it. My theater experiences. I like just remembered to put this on the list. <laughs> um, um, I ended up seeing Saltburn with Christopher Nolan, your good friend, uh, my my good pal Chris, uh, and his wife, and I think his youngest teenage son. They were right in front of me in line uh, buying popcorn, and then we walked into the same theater. And if you've seen Saltburn, um, you know there's a lot happening there, and. In every crazy scene in that movie, I was like, I wonder what Christopher Nolan thinks of this. And I wonder how his son feels sitting next to his parents <laughs> watching this. So what a delight. But my actual like probably favorite theater experience, like I just want to highlight another like comedy this year. I loved 
theater camp so, so much. So funny. As a former theater kid, I'm quite sure I was in a theater with a whole bunch of other former theater kids. I am in New York City after all. I think most people were was like me were seeing that movie alone, but it felt like a real, oh, these are my people. And I had a freaking blast. Um, and it was really fun to to share that with the New York theater community. <laughs> Amanda, what were your favorite experiences of the year? So I did get to see 2001 A Space Odyssey in a theater, which was mind-blowing and something I had been like hunting down for like a year and a half. Um, my like, I ran into somebody and that changed the way I thought about this film is the zone of interest. I went to a press screening. Sorry, it's so different. <laughs> no, I went to a press screening of zone of interest and four people showed up. It was the most sickening film I have possibly ever seen. It, for people who don't know, it is about a commanding officer and his family that, li- that share literally a wall um, in their yard to Auschwitz. And he is an officer in charge of the concentration camp. But in that same theater of my four people, um, I met like one of my favorite vocal critics who I have admired for a really long time. And afterwards, I was like, hey, <laughs> that was not fun. And she was like, that was the scariest movie I've ever seen. I loved it. And then we like chatted a little more and then I went home. So I didn't know like where else to put that movie, but it was one of those things like every, all four of us were like respectful and attentive and appreciative and like everyone treated it like the work of art it was. And I really appreciated that after, you know, some people snored through all of Killers of the Fire Moon. So, um, but on the truly 180 degree opposite end of the spectrum, my favorite theater experience this year was Barbie. Uh, I got to go to the Barbie blowout party. And I took Maddie and Max and we like got tickets and we had like a whole day out of it. And from like almost the first minute, we were all like crying, laughing together. Like strangers were like grabbing on to me. Like we were like in that movie together and seeing it with Maddie was like so special to me. It felt like a big community. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is why like movie theaters are so important. We've been talking about a lot of movies. Uh, We're rounding out here, but we just want to have some honorable mentions. Let's kind of run through these kind of quick because we're probably running long. Amanda, let's just kick back to you. What are some uh, movies you want to give some shine to before we get out of here? Yeah, I mentioned American Fiction, um, The Holdovers, we talked about a bit, loved it. The Killer, uh, David Fincher's movie, I got to see it in theater, I thought it was really excellent. Um, And then sort of like a sneaky favorite this year was Blackberry, I hope more people see that movie, so um, that was my other honorable mention. The best thing about Blackberry is it's a big like don't fuck with movie night movie, (laughs) Um, and if you watch it, you'll understand (laughs) For me, my honorable mentions, The Killer, uh, I thought it was one of the funniest movies of the year. The scene with Tilda Swinton drinking whiskey is was in the running for one of my favorite scenes of the year. You Hurt My Feelings, Nicole Hollow Center joint with Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Tobias Menzies talking about middle-aged marriage strife. Lovely. Uh, speaking of lovely, uh, Showing Up, Kelly Reichardt's film starring Michelle Williams and the artist community in Oregon. Kelly Reichardt has never made a bad film um, and this continues. Uh, and then a really fun and another surprising film is How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Um, it's on Hulu. It is like an activist heist movie in a way um, and really exciting. Maya, what were some films you wanted to mention as well? I could talk about this forever, but I will restrain myself. Uh, Renaissance, <laughs> Beyonce's d- documentary of her tour this year is 
a true feat, a filmmaking feat first and foremost, and then also happens to feature like our greatest living artists. Um, and then we've talked about Priscilla a little bit already. I loved that. And then Rylane was a real like delightful yes, yes. Um, entry into the like modern revival of the rom-com. Rylane is really charming and lovely. Highly worth a watch, recommend to watch. I think we did a great job like spreading the love out to different movies. Um, but this is also a podcast that loves to look backwards and watch movies that we hadn't yet seen. So I'll just kick it over to you guys. Um, Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory, Clute, Movie Rules, yeah. The Deer Hunter, Dogtooth, which is another Yorgos Lantimos movie, um, The Apartment, which instantly became one of my favorite films ever. Uh, old Boy, Neon put this back in theaters. Burn After Reading is probably my favorite Brad Pitt performance now. Oh so good. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, Dog Day Afternoon, uh, Interstellar, talked about that recently. Chinatown, Moonstruck, a shockingly romantic film about adultery. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs> very sexy. I don't know what else to say. Um, and then I was going through Scorsese's filmography and his very first movie, What's a Nice Girl Like You Doing in a Place Like This, is one of the best movies I watched this year. Maya, you have so many good movies. This I is like, amazing. I tried to trim this down, but um, I'm always you know trying to fill in my blind spots. So I watched and loved uh, Bring It On, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Little Miss Sunshine, which I watched with Amanda and was just like oh, in love with. Um, and finally watched Get Out. Um, it's just phenomenal. I got to see it in theaters. So I've now seen all of his Whoa. movies in theaters, which is so great. I'm glad I got to like nice. round that out. And then the last thing I want to shout out is that I went on a crazy binge and in like seven days or fewer watched the first four Rocky movies and the first two Creed movies so that I would be ready for Creed 3. And I had no idea I was going to love Rocky so much. Like, so <laughs> that should literally alone, I love <laughs> He was just so, like, sweet and soft and dumb and lovely. Um, so I love those movies now. Welcome to the congregation. Hell yeah. yeah. Um, my favorite movies, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Um, the 74 Scorsese joint with Ellen Burstyn. I loved that movie. Also loved Paper Moon. Um, Tatum O'Neill, Ryan O'Neill, Psycho, which we talked about uh, yeah. on uh, a podcast earlier this year. I mean, what else is there to say? And then also John Singleton's Poetic Justice, awesome Tupac performance. Those are some of the movies we wanted to shout out. Let's uh, start to get out of here. I forgot to put this in the timeline or in the outline until just now. Oh, no. <laughs> it's a tradition on Blind Spotters, our favorite bit, our beloved vampire Louis de Pont de Lac, Amanda. What 2023 film do you think is his favorite? I think Louis loved Oppenheimer. Oh, you think he Oppenheimer over Barbie? Yes, um, because he lived it. And, <laughs> <laughs> and he has an adoration for filmmaking. And I think he watched the Trinity Chest and said, hell yeah, brother. <laughs> this is what movies are about. Maya, do you understand this bit? Or I, I do, do understand this bit, but <laughs> I okay. everyone understands. But I this. don't think I have like, a good enough grasp okay. <laughs> to like uh, to like really participate. At the end of Interview with a Vampire, Brad Pitt's character Louis Dupont de Lac, he spends a lot of his time because he's a loner, just going to the movies and like 
there's this little bit where he's like, I just love going to the movies because I'm like seeing things I've never seen before and like remembers when like Technicolor happened and like all this stuff. Like he's just like, like he can't go out during the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he just like vampire. goes to the movies and like mm-hmm. watches all the movies. I could see him liking poor things from the like kind of like oh, creation oh, of, of something yeah. oh, in that's the same really way smart. that like vampires are created by other vampires like Bella Baxter was created. I think you aced your understanding of uh, yeah, nailed it. Bit. Thank you so much. Would he though, would he also maybe like Mission Impossible 7 part 1? Because he's like, I know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> He might be traumatized. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, my, my picks are either going to be Barbie because I feel like he uh, is, a, is a champion of women um, yeah. actualizing themselves. But uh, my other shot was uh, there's like a Icelandic slash Danish movie that came is out this year Godland? called Godland. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> the movie's fine, but it's like this beautiful Icelandic landscapes. And I have to imagine that he would appreciate the cinematography. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. This is one of our favorite pods to put together every year. It's so fun. It's always great to have Maya on. Thanks for Um, having me. You're welcome. We had a double pod month, so you can find a swap next week on the third Tuesday. Um, But traditionally, you can always find an episode on the podcast on the second Tuesday of the month. Um, follow us on Instagram at BlindSpottersPod. You can follow us on Twitter at BlindSpotters. It's probably the best way to let us know what your upcoming questions are for the Oscars. We'll just start plugging it now so that when it comes around, it's early March this year, so we're going to have to record it earlier than usual. But um, yeah, send us your questions. Send us your hot takes. What do you want to know? What do you think is going to happen? What do you hope doesn't happen? Anything like that. Any, anything we can talk about. Um, Zach, where can people follow you on social media? You can find me on Twitter at Zach Pocklib. And as always, you can find me on Letterboxd. I um, also published my favorite movies of 2023 um, article that I usually do on Medium. Um, so that whole thing is there. I did like 50 something movies. Um, so if you want to have more interest or like, where's this movie uh, ranked? You can yell at me. Um, there. Maya, where can people follow you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, or Letterboxd at Maya Patros. You can also find me across platforms at Amanda Luberto. Wow. Amazing. What Great a job, year. everybody. We, we did it. did it. Can't wait to do it in 2025 about the 2024 slate. We're so back, it's unreal. Hell yeah. And uh, in the words of Maya and I's favorite movie, see you then. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> <laughs>